Hello, everyone. My name is Jeffrey Jones. I'm one of the members here at Jefferson Avenue. Good to see everybody today. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 21 for today's scripture reading. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set liberty to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Thank you, Jeffrey. Well, good morning, everyone. Man, is. As school is underway, and we have, I mean, it's Labor Day weekend, so Labor Day weekend is officially the start of fall now. We can begin to put our summer series uh, on the life of David in the rearview mirror, and we can get back to the, uh, the Gospel of Luke, which, Lord willing, we should finish sometime mid-spring. Uh, we'll see. I, I make no promises. Uh, so I, I'm excited to get back to the Gospel of Luke, but I got to tell you, I, I had mixed emotions about the David series that we did. I loved it and hated it at the same time. It, it was this up and down, so many highs and lows. Uh, but, but when you think about King David, I, I, think, I think that we can see ourselves in the life of David in many, many ways. I think for some of us, uh, we, we find ourselves from time to time making solid decisions, good decisions that work for our good and for the good of those we love. And I'm sure that we have all made a mistake that has caused others pain, that has hurt those in the, in the lives around us, in our, our lives around us and has made their overall life Harder. So what I love about the life of David is, is it is simultaneously an example of what to do and how to pray and how we should live. And at the exact same time, David is the kind of man that you probably don't want to marry your daughter. And I said that a couple times throughout the series. So this is David, a great example and a terrible example rolled all into one. Now, as I was reflecting on the life of David and thinking about who he was, uh, I can't help but think like, there were some good kings besides just David in, in the Old Testament. But no king gets as much real estate in the book of the Bible or in the, in the entire Bible as David does. We don't get into all the nitty-gritty of the life of King Josiah, who was a great king. We don't get into the nitty-gritty of Hezekiah, who was another good king. David's the only one that we get to see everything. I mean, his good, his bad, and his ugly, we get to see it all. And I, I think this is important as we move forward back into the New Testament, as we move into the life of Jesus. I, I think David is being set up as perhaps the greatest king of all that Israel had ever known. And yet when we look at his life, we see something is missing. When we look at his kingdom, we think it's good, it's great, but something is missing. So as we move through the history of the Old Testament, 
we should find ourselves wanting a little bit more. So when you read through the Old Testament, when, when you read through the ups and downs of God's people, when, when you see kings come and go, when you see prophets give variations of the same message over and over again to different generations and to different kings, when all that has happened over and over again, you find yourself longing for a better king and a better kingdom. And when all this is over, all right, one, one of the main reasons why I wanted to do this summer series on King David was to help us see our need for a better king and a better kingdom. So as we go back to the Gospel of Luke, I want you to, to be paying attention to how Jesus is better than David and how the kingdom of God is even greater than the nation of Israel. So as we moved through uh, the book of Luke all last school year, we made it through 11 chapters. And if you're anything like me, you have forgotten what we've talked about. Over, uh, over the past summer. You, you've probably lost track of where we were. So rather than recap 11 chapters of Scripture and then, and then preach a sermon at the end of that, I decided to spare you all. And we're just going to do a recap today. What I want to do is just walk through these first 11 chapters of the book of Luke so that you can see how Luke is preparing for us a case that, that Jesus is indeed a better David and the kingdom that he's bringing is a better kingdom. So let's go ahead and, and jump into the purpose statements that Luke gives us as to why he wrote his gospel. So let's look at Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And we spent a lot of time on this, and it's come up from time to time as we've moved through the book of Luke. So I just didn't feel like we could do a recap without starting here. Luke 1, verses 1 through 4. It says this, And as much... As many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Okay, so why did Luke bring us this book? Why did he write this gospel? What did the Holy Spirit um, inspire him to do? All right, to write this gospel, he, he was writing in order to provide an orderly account of what had happened among us. And I like this phrase, among us, because he's saying, like, hey, we, we saw this. We observed this. It really happened. We were there. It happened among us. He says that he did it, uh, he wrote to provide eyewitness testimony. So it happened among us, we're the ones who saw it, I interviewed them, I put this together so that you may have an orderly account. And why did he do all this? So that his, his brother, his friend, could have certainty concerning the things that he's been taught. So when we come to the book of Luke, we should be looking at it as a book that helps provide for us certainty of the things that we have been taught. So then Luke begins to unfold the story of, of Jesus from the beginning. And he says that, that what he does there is he begins to, uh, to tell about Jesus' family and, and Jesus' birth. And he walks us through the kingly lineage of, of Jesus all the way back to Adam. And I love how he does that. As he goes all the way back to Adam, he says that he is the, the son of God. And all of this 
is, uh, uh, as he goes through, he's just telling more and more of the story. He tells us about John the Baptist's backstory and his connections to Jesus. All of these things he's telling right at the beginning. And as we see Jesus come onto the scene as an adult, Luke starts building a case that Jesus is indeed the Messiah and coming king, a king that was even better than David. Luke tells us uh, of, of John's testimony, John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus. And after Jesus is baptized, Luke gives us a very, very important passage. In Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, it says this, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my, what? Beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So this new king, Jesus, would not be like other kings. He was not just the son of David, he was the son of God. The son of God was coming down to be the king. So after this baptism, he is uh, led out into the wilderness. And what do we begin to see right off the bat in the ministry of Jesus? He goes and he takes on the enemy, the devil. Forty days of temptation out in the wilderness. And what do we see happen? Jesus has victory over temptation and over the enemy. So as he comes on the scene, we already begin to see that Jesus is the one who has the victory. He is a king who's come to conquer and he wins in this first big cosmic battle against the devil and his temptation. Then he goes back to his hometown. And he goes back to his hometown, and he goes to the synagogue in Nazareth. And he reads what Jeffrey read for us just a second ago in Luke chapter 4, verse 18 through 21. Let's read it again. So Jesus comes to his hometown in Nazareth. He opens the scroll and begins to read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You just imagine being there, Jesus reading this. You go, all right, yeah, this is good. Then he rolls up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and it says all and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is coming to bring the kingdom. And what's the kingdom going to do? It's going to set at liberty those who are captive. It's going to give sight to the blind. It's going to, uh, uh, what else is it going to do? Be good news to the poor. Right? All these things is what he's coming to do. This is the year of the Lord's favor. And so the people hear this and they go, yay! They're excited. But then Jesus continues because he doesn't want the people to miss this. He isn't, he isn't merely saying, this is going to be a good time, y'all. He says, I'm the Messiah. The kingdom is coming. I'm bringing the kingdom. And guess who's the king? Me. And his friends and family that he grew up with, the people that he knew, were like, no way. Not you. Not you. And so they ran him out of town, and we're going to throw him off a cliff and kill him. And then Jesus walks through them and leaves, 
and said, because his time had not yet come. But he did not allow these people to misinterpret what Jesus was saying. He wanted them to know that he was coming as the king, bringing in the kingdom. So after Jesus leaves Nazareth, he heads down to the Sea of Galilee and begins to establish himself in the towns along the sea. And as he was beginning his ministry in this region, Luke records for us uh, Jesus' mission in, in chapter 4, verse 43. And it says this, But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. What was Jesus doing? He was coming to preach the good news of the kingdom. He was on a mission. He is fulfilling what he read in the scrolls of Isaiah. He had a plan. His actions and his words were not haphazard. They were designed to show what the kingdom of God would be like. Jesus was showing us who he was. He was showing us what he came to do, and he was showing us what it means to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God. Now, as Jesus came to the region around the Sea of Galilee, he began to do many miracles, and he even called his, his first disciples. And one of his famous miracles comes uh, from Luke chapter 5, where some friends uh, had, a, had a friend who was paralyzed, and they couldn't, get Jesus, they couldn't get their friend to Jesus. So they climbed up on the roof, they opened the roof up, and they lowered their paralyzed friend down in front of Jesus. And, and in this miracle, something very, very cool begins to happen. Before Jesus healed this man, he forgave him of his sins. And then we have this in Luke chapter 5, verse 24. It says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has what? Say it. Authority. Authority. He's the king, right? This is the Son of God coming to bring in the kingdom. The king is coming. So he's coming now in authority but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Now, Luke is showing us that Jesus is establishing his authority. Jesus is a king coming in power. He has authority over both the physical and the spiritual world. Luke lays out several of examples throughout uh, the early parts of, of the book of Luke where Jesus is establishing his authority. Jesus can touch those who are unclean, like lepers. And instead of him becoming unclean, what happens to the person that he touches? They become clean. Jesus has authority over the weather. He can calm a storm. He has authority over the, print, the powers of darkness. We see him casting out demons all over the place. He has power and authority over life and death as we see Jesus literally raise the dead. Jesus is bringing in the kingdom of God and he is coming in authority, the kingdom of heaven. And what I love about all this, these examples of Jesus' miracles, if you think about this, these are just little tidbits of what eternity is going to be like. What do we know about eternity? No more sickness, no more crying, no more pain, no more death, for all these things have gone away, right? So what do we see in the ministry of Jesus? But tastes of eternity here on earth as he is displaying his authority, as the kingdom of heaven 
is literally coming to earth. Now, he has all this authority that he's displaying through his miraculous signs, but also his authority is, is developed through his teaching. So we see that Jesus not only has authority in the signs, but he has authority in what he says. So when we were going through uh, Luke last school year, we spent a couple of weeks going through Luke chapter 6, which is known on the ser- as, as the Sermon on the Plain. Now, if we're going to be good citizens of God's kingdom, then we need to know what life in the kingdom was going to be like. So Jesus began to teach what life in the kingdom is. And he, he says this, in the kingdom of God, we see that the poor will be blessed. In the kingdom of God, the hungry will be satisfied. The weeping will laugh. And our reward will be great if we suffer because of the name of Jesus. In the kingdom of God, we need to love our enemies. Now, I want you to grab onto that because we're going to come back to this. The kingdom of God says that we're going to love our enemies. And we need to love those who can't do anything for us to make our life better. Who do we need to love? The people who can't make our life better. It's easy to love those who make our life better. It's harder, or just hard, you tell me, to love those who maybe can't make your life better. Now, I want you to have these ideas in the back of your mind as we continue to go through the book of Luke. Because what you're gonna what you're gonna begin to see is that Jesus lives this out. Not only has he called us to this, but we see this kind of love in Jesus on display. He calls us to it. He says, This is what the kingdom of God is, and he lives it out for us. So on the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus tells us that as a citizen of the kingdom of God, he also says this: that we're like trees, that we are known by our fruit. We're known by our fruit. In other words, if we're going to follow Jesus, if we say we have citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, then what should we look like? Citizens of the kingdom of heaven. If it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's a duck. All right. Similarly, if we say we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven, then what should we look like? What should we talk like? What should we act like? Citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Now, by God's grace and mercy because of his great love for us, even though we don't always act like citizens of the kingdom of heaven, by faith in Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ accomplished for us, he has granted us citizenship. Praise the Lord. That's right. That is something you can amen to. That's right. So if we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven, then our lives should match. We should listen to the one we call Lord, and we should do what he says, since he is the king. All right, but... But here's the thing about, about, the, about Jesus and the kingdom that he was bringing. Some people didn't like it. They did not like his message. And the more blatant Jesus' miracles became, and, and the more directly his, his teachings challenged the common religious views of the day, the more that Jesus set himself at odds with the religious authorities. I kind of used that word on purpose. Because what's Jesus coming in with? Authority. And what do these people claim to have? Authority. And yet, whose authority is greater? Christ's. And as Christ's authority clashes with man's authority, we have conflict. And what happens when we have conflict between two authorities? War. 
just want you to think about that for a second. War. Jesus is coming as a conquering king. Coming to challenge those in authority with his greater authority. So Jesus is challenging them. He's finding himself at odds with them. And Jesus begins to warn his disciples what was in store for them as his followers. And not only what was in store for them, what was in store for him as he's bringing in the kingdom of God. Let's look at uh, Luke chapter 9. Let's jump into verse 18 here. It says this. Now it happened that he was praying, as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets of old, has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, What's Jesus say? The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and, must, and, and be killed and on the third day be raised. I just, I want you to notice here, who did he mention? All of the religious authorities. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on killed by their authority and on the third day be raised by whose authority? His authority. Do you see how he's already showing himself greater? They think they can kill Jesus, but Jesus is saying, I'm greater. They think they have authority, but guess what? I'm greater. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the glory of the holy angels." Now, what I love about this passage here is, is Jesus was quite popular with the people. Okay, but at the same time, he made some enemies with the religious leaders. So with this framework in, in mind, he's popular with the people, he's in conflict with the religious leaders, what does Jesus do? He asks the question, who do people say that I am? And what are their answers? Their answers are consistent with his popularity. They are saying good things about Jesus. Oh, he's Elijah. He's one of the prophets of old, come back. He's John the Baptist. These are good things. How many of y'all as Sunday school teachers or me as a, as a pastor, like if I got compared to John the Baptist or Elijah, I'd be like, mm, that's awesome, right? Okay, that's a great compliment to everyone except the Son of God. That is a wonderful compliment except for the Messiah, and so what we see here is they are acknowledging good things about Jesus, but they're stopping short of acknowledging who he truly is. There's something different about this guy. There's something special about this guy, but they couldn't 
quite get there. And then we have Peter's confession. Peter gets it. He says, you are the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah. And it's in the context of his popularity with the people and Peter's confession that Jesus tells his disciples that he would be rejected and killed. But Jesus said something huge, that he would be raised on the third day. So despite the way things look on the outside, who's in control? God is in control. Who has authority? Jesus has authority. Yet his disciples would have trouble remembering this little fact when they needed it the most. But we need to see that Jesus was already laying down the foundation for his resurrection. Now, after Jesus talks about his death and his resurrection, he essentially tells us that if we are to follow him, then we need to be unified with him completely. That's important for us to remember. If we're going to follow Jesus, then we need to be unified with him completely. Jesus is going to die for them. And with that death, it's going to be an opportunity for shame. Just think about that. My leader's dead. He died a criminal's death. They didn't accept him. They didn't accept his authority. They denied who he was, and they killed him for it. And I have united myself with him. Jesus died in shame. As he dies, there's this opportunity for them to feel shame. They might even be tempted to be ashamed of Jesus. And I think that's one of the important things that we see from Peter's denial, is that as, as they were living this out, we see in Peter's denial uh, a, a shame associated with Jesus. But here's the thing. They actually knew who Christ was. And they should be united with Christ. And they shouldn't be ashamed of Jesus. Instead, they should completely sell out to who Jesus is. They should see, they've seen this authority. They've seen the miracles. They've seen the dead raised. They've heard the teaching. Jesus is telling them, hey, if, if you want to save your life, you got to lose it. You have to lose who you are, be completely sold out to me, is what Jesus tells them. They need to embrace his teaching. They need to embrace who he is because this is the way of life. If in our shame we reject who Christ is and what he taught, then we reject Christ altogether, including the salvation that he offers. What's he say in verse 26? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. That that verse makes us uncomfortable. He's saying, be all in. Believe. And Luke is showing us, right? What was his purpose statement? That you may have certainty, the things you've been taught. Luke wants his readers to see this is who Jesus is. He is the conquering king. He is coming to earth. He's bringing the kingdom. And this is a good thing. Sell out to it. You know who he is. He comes to bring life. Believe him and follow him. Now after this, Luke shows us a second time through the transfiguration that even God himself claimed 
that Jesus was his son. So remember that when he's on the Mount of Transfiguration, he says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. That's what the father says. Then Jesus comes off the Mount of Transfiguration and there is this demon-possessed boy where the demon was very resilient and would not come out uh, when the disciples were trying to cast him out. And then Jesus came and Jesus was able to rebuke that, that demon. Now after that, Jesus told the disciples again that he was going to die. So we have the second proclamation of Jesus' death in Luke chapter 9, verses 43b through 45. It says this, But while they were marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. I still love that. Like, don't be dumb. Listen. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Twice, twice Jesus has now predicted his death. Luke highlights Jesus' determination to fulfill his mission. And, And to be clear, he said it twice. What's his mission? His mission is to die. But not just die. But what? Raise from the dead. Now, as Luke continues, he tells us in verse 51 that Jesus had his face set to Jerusalem. So 951, it says Jesus' face was set to Jerusalem. With this trip to Jerusalem, we start to see Jesus get into more direct conflict with the religious leaders. Now it's coming to a head. It's going to become more and more obvious. And as this this conflict increases, the cost of following Jesus begins to show. So at the end of chapter 9, we have uh, this this explanation of what it is to follow Jesus. And Jesus says this uh, at this, this, all right, hey, I want to follow you. And Jesus says this, and, and this is one that we remember. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus is telling them, following me is not going to be easy. It's going to cost. But if you want to save your life, what do you have to do? Lose it. If if you want to proceed as a citizen in the kingdom of heaven, you have to renounce your citizenship in the kingdom of earth. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Why? Because he is the king of the kingdom of heaven. And he is bringing in the kingdom of heaven. And we are called to be citizens of what kingdom? Heaven. Even at the expense of our comfort, safety, and security here on earth. Because if we try to save our life here on earth, what's going to happen? We're going to lose it. But the way to find real life is to find our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven where we die to this life and save our life eternally. Now this conflict begins to really start brewing as we move into chapter 11. As the gospel of of Luke continues to unfold, Jesus wants his followers to know that there is no neutrality. Okay, he's, he's a king. The kingdom of heaven is advancing. You are either a citizen of the kingdom of heaven or you're not. There is no neutrality. Okay, you have to pay, pick a side. We are either with Jesus 
or we are against him. We can't be part of a crowd who thinks Jesus is cool, who's willing to admit, oh yeah, he's like Elijah or one of the prophets of old, but nothing more than that, okay? We have to say he is the Messiah. We have to pick a side. Now, as all the people were, were surveying everything that was going around, around Jesus, there was no doubt that these miracles were real and they were dynamic, but people were not ready to accept who Jesus was. They could all see it. They knew it was happening. So what did they do? They denied Jesus' authority. And who did they give the authority to? Demons. And they said that it's by Beelzebul the prince of demons, that Jesus does these things. So they cannot deny what Jesus was doing, so instead of denying what he does, they deny his authority. And I love this exchange, how Jesus confronts the people with a bold claim. Listen to this in Luke chapter 11, verse 19 and 20. Jesus says, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. Listen, listen. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. What did Jesus come to do? Bring the kingdom of God. There's no denying his authority. There's no denying the advancing of his kingdom. It is upon them. Now just think about this in battle terms. What do you say when the advancing army is close? You say, the enemy is upon us. This is ominous language here. Jesus is, is saying, he's coming. You're his enemy. Do you want to be the enemy of the kingdom of God? That's a terrifying place to be. That is an ominous thing. Jesus is it's like, you've seen all this stuff. You're going to say I'm doing this by the prince of demons? No, no. This is done by the finger of God. And it is evidence that the kingdom of God is upon you, is opposed to you, is challenging you. And if they, if they don't believe in Jesus as Messiah, if they don't follow him, they are the enemy. Chapter 11 contends to really, uh, continues to really ratchet up the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. Uh, chapter 11, verses 37 through 54 lay out seven woe statements. And these woes, these woes are like warnings to the religious leaders. In these woe statements, Jesus is simultaneously doing three things. Okay? One, he's holding the religious leaders accountable for their actions. Okay? Woe to you. He's, he's holding them accountable for their actions. Second, he's providing a chance for them to repent with this warning. He's calling them out. This is what's wrong. Here's the truth of it. They now have a chance to repent. And finally, he's, he's telling us how their sin has blinded them to the truth. 
and even blinded those who followed these religious leaders. I want to read the last woe at the conclusion of the, and the conclusion of the exchange in Luke chapter 11, verses 52 through 54. It says, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Think about the walls to the kingdom of heaven. And these were the religious leaders who should have had the keys to the kingdom as they understood and knew the Old Testament. They knew God's promises. They knew his prophecies. They had the keys of knowledge. And instead, they took away the knowledge that should have pointed to the kingdom. They took it away. And not only, not only did they not enter themselves, we often think of city gates as being barred from the inside so that those on the outside can't get in. What we see is that they are barring the gates from the outside and not letting people in. That's a scary, scary proposition. They have hindered those who are entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Now, I love this last warning, okay, as Jesus is calling these guys out, woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the keys of knowledge and you did not enter yourself and you hindered those who were entering. I love this last warning because it's so protective, Jesus is identifying these, these religious leaders as, as obstacles to those who might come to the kingdom. And Jesus is calling them out, letting us know that he's looking out for everybody else. Why is he calling out the religious leaders? Because they are hindering others from coming to the kingdom. I love seeing this protective side of Jesus. And we see him willingly step into the fray step into the fray of a battle with the religious leaders as he's protecting us, as he's protecting those he loves, as he's working for those he has called. I love this protective nature of Jesus. He's mad at these teachers of law because they are keeping people from believing and entering the kingdom of God. And so he blasts these guys. It's for... It's for their benefit too, though, right? So that they can have a chance to repent. But Jesus does this again. And I love this. He reminds the people that you cannot look for a middle ground. Think about these religious leaders. If you went through the woes, which you can go back and read on your own in chapter 11, he talks about how they look good on the outside, how they have this good moral appearance. And Jesus is telling us that these things aren't of eternal consequence. The Pharisees do a lot of right things. Yeah, they mess up a lot too, but they do a lot of right things. But the main thing they do wrong is they miss who Jesus is. They miss who he is. They have all the resources to know and recognize who Jesus is. They have the keys. And yet they take away the key of knowledge and they don't enter the kingdom, and they hinder those who might go in. They miss Jesus, and they miss 
the kingdom and they lead the people away from the kingdom. These people are clearly the enemies of Jesus. And the chapter ends with a conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders increasing. And this is what we're going to pick up next week, where this heat has, has increased, this tension between the enemies of Christ and Christ are beginning to really shine. So, so far in the book of Luke, we've seen that the book is written to increase our faith and give us certainty about who Jesus is. And Luke does this by, by showing us who his family is and what his family life was about. Luke does this by showing us the birth of Jesus and his genealogy and his line. He shows us who Jesus is by laying out all these miracles and how these miracles show us Jesus' authority. And throughout the book of Luke so far, we've specifically seen how Jesus has authority over illness, how he has authority over the weather through the feeding of the 5,000, how he has uh, uh, authority over food. He's got authority over demons. As he's raised from the dead, he even has authority over death. And because of his authority over all the forces of the world, we can trust that Jesus' teaching has authority. And we can trust that Jesus actually has the authority to forgive our sins. So even though many oppose Jesus, even though many simply can't bring themselves to admit that Jesus is the Messiah, even though he has so many reasons to not go to Jerusalem, he has many reasons to not increase tension. We see his face was set on Jerusalem and this conflict and this showdown with his enemies. I keep using that word enemies on purpose because when we think about war, when we think about this coming of the kingdom, when we think about it being upon them, we think about the, the forces of the kingdom destroying the enemy. And that will happen. That will happen. But guess what else the kingdom does? The kingdom loves its enemies. The kingdom of God came to save its enemies. And I know I read this passage a lot, but I want to end today by reading from Romans chapter 5. As we think about these two forces colliding, as we think about the increase of tension between Jesus and the religious leaders, I want you to frame that in Romans 5 and how Paul talks about Christ and his enemies. Start in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the who? Ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from what? From what? The wrath of God. The kingdom is coming. And who saves us 
from the wrath of God and the coming of king, the, the kingdom. The king. Isn't that cool? I love that. I love that. It is coming. Judgment is coming. We know it's coming. But praise God, he saves us from his wrath. Verse 10. For if while we were what? Enemies. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The kingdom is coming. The wrath of God is coming. But the one who is coming is also saving. The gates to the kingdom of heaven are open. And by faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, we know he has the authority to forgive sins. And by his grace, we are saved. We are welcomed into the kingdom of God. We go from being his enemy to being citizens in his kingdom. That's what the king came to do. Do you see how this is a greater David? Do you see how this is a greater kingdom? This is why we get together on Sunday morning. This is why we worship. For while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us and gave us reconciliation. What's it say in verse 11? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Though we were his enemies, now we are part of the army of God. Could you just imagine that? Like a terrorist, you know, a part of Al-Qaeda or the Taliban being given a trusted position in the U.S. military, giving him the nuclear codes? Like that seems crazy. But that's what happens in the kingdom of God. We are forgiven. Though we were like crimson, we shall be made white as snow. That's the level of forgiveness we get in Jesus Christ. That's what it is to have reconciliation, true peace with God, not based on anything we did. We were his enemies. We were opposed to him. But while we were his enemies, he died for us. That's the hope of the gospel. That is the good news that, what, what's, what did Jesus say back in chapter 4? The Spirit of the Lord has come upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. That's what he's doing. He's preaching that to us. He's extending that liberty. He is giving sight to the blind, literally and figuratively, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So as we come to a, a close and it's time to wrap this up, man, are you ready to walk in the year of the Lord's favor? To rejoice in the reconciliation that we as believers in Jesus Christ have received? As a church, as the church, united together in Christ, we should rejoice as we sing because he has done great things for us. Right? And at the same time, if you are here and you think, I, I have not been reconciled to Christ, guess what? The gates of the kingdom are open. The kingdom has come. And by faith in Jesus Christ, you too can be reconciled to him. You can have forgiveness of your sins. So if you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, 
then man, we would love to talk with you more about what it is to trust in this better king and to live as citizens of this better kingdom. You can come talk to me as we sing. You can talk to a believer who's sitting next to you. You can find us later. But if you are ready to put your faith in Jesus Christ, we want to do that. And if you're here and you know the goodness of what it is to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, then we get to sing with gladness. Amen? Amen. So praise team, would you come as, as I pray? Lord, we are so grateful for the way that you love us. Father, we look forward to seeing how you reveal yourself in the rest of the book of Luke. We thank you that you went through suffering here on earth. Lord, remind us that we don't need to be ashamed of you because you really are who you said you were. And anything this world may challenge us with, your world, your kingdom is eternal, and this world, this kingdom is passing away. Help us, Lord, to set our eyes on things that are above. Lord, I pray that you would be in this place, that you would give us joy in our souls to remember today what you've done, that as we sing, we may lift your name up with great joy and gladness. Lord, if, if there are those who are here who don't know you, I pray that they would see your love for us and they would be moved to faith in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. As we sing, the altar is open. If you just need to come and lay your burdens down before him, this is also a time to do that. So if you need somebody to pray with you, grab them. Come, bring them down. You may have something to pray about that has nothing to do with anything that I said today. But however the Lord is moving in your hearts and life, let him work as we sing.